Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to our regular guest, Justin Parrott. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Thanks for having me. Walaikum salam. And uh, for those who don't know, Justin is currently research librarian for Middle East Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi and research fellow for the Yakin Institute for Islamic Research. Now, he's the author of Finding Truth in the Age of Fake News, Information Literacy in Islam. Very interesting article, and I'll, I'll link it in the description below. And in the article, he writes this, just a paragraph uh, I'm going to mention here. Uh, there are many scammers, swindlers and crooks on the web who are out to sell you false promises and shoddy goods. There are professional fake news artists who want to influence your opinion to their own advantage by using targeted disinformation. And there are professional Islamophobes, how true, who specialize in demonizing Islam, its people and its traditions. By familiarizing yourself with the principles of information literacy, you can protect yourself from all these online predators, as well as from contributing yourself to their nefarious actions, end quote. So would you like to introduce us to the main themes of your article, Justin? Sure. Um, so the article came about because um, I am an information professional. I have a master's degree in library and information science and I have a master's degree in Islamic studies. So I was kind of combining the things I learned into this uh, one article. So uh, broadly speaking, information literacy in uh, the world of library and information science are the skills that you need to discover, evaluate, interpret and use information. Right. So you that that's the whole chain you discover the information evaluate it interpret it and how do you use it so discovery is like using different search engines um you know google is obviously very popular uh but it's very different from ebsco and proquest and jstor and the other big names out there and each database kind of has its own quirks because it's using a different algorithm so the discovery part involves a lot of technical skills right especially if you're going to be very good at it then you have to be able to evaluate sources. Are these sources credible? Uh, what's the counter argument to these sources? Do these sources have a bias? Um, and then you need to interpret that information. So you have to fit it into the knowledge that you already have uh, correctly. You know, and people can have access to credible information and then not understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. And um, then how do you use that information? What are you using that information for? So those are the those are the broad themes of information literacy, and I teach it in an academic setting to mostly undergraduates. So I'm teaching them how to use EBSCO and JSTOR and ProQuest, how to use library catalogs and how to find books and all those types of things, library services. Hmm. Um, but information literacy as a whole is going to be, according to the author that I quoted in the article or I cited in the article, it's going to be the essential skill, the essential competency of the 21st century, right? Wow. The same as reading. So, um, you know, we think of people who can't read as very uneducated and very illiterate and they, they never, you know, they don't contribute to society very much, you know, if you can't read. Um, and it's going to become, uh, in, in as we move into this more and more information, um, in order to participate in society effectively, you have to become information literate. You have to know how to use search engines, how to evaluate sources, uh, interpret the data and so on. Um, so it's, it's actually extremely important, right? That um, we have to have these skills and as Muslims and then as people in general, right? Yeah. Uh, because we, we face this information overload and we have to cut through mm. all that noise and all the people mm. who lie, because there are people who lie and uh, people who put out bad information, people who misinterpret information, you know, we have to cut through all that noise and kind of find mm. the truth and all of that. So that's where the title of the article came up. And and I wrote this when fake news was becoming a big thing. What? Um, you know, and, and I'm talking about not just misleading or biased news, but like legitimately fake news, like completely fake websites that were being put up with fake stories Wow. And they were monetizing those things. I think the BBC did an art, uh, a documentary about that. Some people in Eastern Europe, they had these websites and it was just totally fake news. And so 
you know, there was that, that was happening, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they do that at an election time, you know, cause they want to confuse people. So, um, information literacy is really basically about learning how to learn in the modern era. So it's learning how to use the internet and how to use databases and all of this information that we have. So, and information needs to be distinguished from knowledge. Okay. Because ilm, right. Knowledge is defined according to fiqh purposes or for the purposes of the law in Islam is to conceive something as it exists in reality. Right. So you have knowledge when your conception of something is, you know, is in agreement with the truth of that thing, right? That's actual knowledge uh, in, in terms of law as defined by law, um, which is different from khabar or akhbar, which is information, reports, stories, and things like that. You know, there are a lot of akhbar that are reported in the Islamic history books that are completely baseless. Mm -hmm. And At-Tabari, who was the big main Islamic historian, Muslim historian, um, who wrote that monumental work of many, many volumes, he says in the very beginning of that work that the these are the reports of what people said. History can only be known by what how people have reported it. And so he ascribes this narrations to the people who narrated and not to the actual people that they're discussing. Right. And he said, there's some offensive things and there are untrue things in the book, but he collected all of these reports just for the sake of, you know, uh, documenting everything that was being reported out there. Yeah. So we have to have this distinguish, uh, this distinction between knowledge and information. Right. And just because you have a lot of information doesn't mean you have knowledge. Yeah. You can know a lot of information, but your conception of reality is completely uh, warped. Right. Because of mm -hmm. the layers of misinformation that are in the information that you are accessing. Um, and then we need to make it this. I, I want to make a distinguish. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to make a distinction between the terms misinformation and disinformation. Because people use them online in um, you, as synonyms, right? They don't make a dis distinction between those two terms, but they're actually very different. And it's really important to understand that. So misinformation is information that has been published that is just incorrect or it's misleading. And the person who shares that misinformation does not necessarily intend to be deceitful, Right. Uh, they just, you know, this is what they heard and they're reporting it to you and uh, it's wrong. And, and so it's misinformation, right? Now, disinformation is the intentional publication and sharing of information that is completely false. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and this is like the legitimate fake news, right? It's just actually actual fake news. Mm. So we have misinformation and disinformation. And this is also very serious because disinformation is part of the war, the modern day warfare doctrines. So they call it nonlinear warfare uh, or as part of hybrid warfare, that disinformation is a tactic of war that is being played out on social media, on, you know, the internet and things like yeah. that. So can I, can I say, on, on, if I may, yeah. sorry to interrupt you um, on that point, I mean, I know we're not going to get involved in politics because that's a whole different ball game, but I, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't help but note how important this is that, you know, we're in a major war at the moment with, with in Ukraine, uh, Russia invaded and NATO is pushing back, etc. Uh, I mean, it's often said, and I think truly the first casualty in war is the truth actually, um, and uh, th th this this is always always the case. And I, I just mentioned for the record. I mean, I'm not asking you to give your opinion unless you want to, of course. Um, you know about the the attack on the pipeline, um, the Russian pipeline uh, that was you know, sending oil or gas or whatever it was to to, to Europe. Um, it was initially uh, blamed on Russia, of course, but NATO blamed. Uh, White House was very clear. Europe was very clear. The Russians did this. The Russians did this. But I read an article in the Washington Post of all of all places uh, about a week ago. It's a pretty esteemed uh, newspaper. You know that they were originally involved in exposing, you know, the Nixon files, etc. Um, saying actually, most um, intelligence people, uh, intelligence agencies, have now concluded that the Russians didn't actually do it for a whole bunch of reasons. But they don't actually say who the obvious alternative candidate is and because the obvious alternative candidate 
is the United States and NATO because they're the yeah. other players in the game. So it looks like um, the, actually NATO uh, did, did this action, which would normally be called a terrorist action. But the, the reason I mention this story is because of the question of fake news, misinformation and disinf sorry, disinformation, deliberate intentional deception. If NATO did do it, then, this, they're, then they're, they're calling out Russia as the culprit. It's just disinformation, deliberate, mm -hmm. conscious, because uh, as... As I said at the beginning, the first casualty in war is the truth and lies are part of warfare. Disinformation is part of warfare. And um, so I, I thought that was a very important example of misinformation, disinformation rather, uh, and lies in in our time now. Because if, if this is true, it is a lie. If NATO can do it then, what else are they not telling us the truth about? Uh, correct. And I mean, it's it's a war. It's a shooting war. And, and so both sides are um, utilizing disinformation techniques in support mm. of their military objectives. So that, that's just taken as a given or regardless of who actually blew up the pipe, that uh, there's going to be all kinds of disinformation put out by governments and other actors uh, surrounding that, because that's just the nature of uh, modern warfare. Right. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> Uh, that's an introduction about why this is a serious topic. You know, uh, you know, information literacy is extremely important for citizens to have and Muslims in particular, uh, so that we're not misled by actors and, and, and disinformation. I don't want to say it's just governments or, or militaries that are doing that. You know, um, there are, uh, scammers, you know, selling fake products and, yeah. you know, all, all kinds of, uh, Ponzi schemes and things like that, that you also need to look out for. And that that's, is a type of fraud, a type of disinformation. Yeah, a lot of people way. get stung by that. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you get a, like a, a, apparently a reputable bank or a utility company emailing you saying, you know, uh, please, please email and contact us. And it's actually a scam. It's a way of getting information out of you and robbing you of your money. And unfortunately, many people fall victim to this practice. And it's been highlighted endlessly. The BBC have mentioned it. Um, it's a serious problem. Uh, you know, it, it's fraud and, you know, ripping people off big time. It's terrible. Right. And their tactics continue to evolve and as the technology evolves and they're also relentless. So there are they won't stop. There's always going to be those types of scams that are out there. So we need to equip ourselves with the tools to be able to see right. through these things and to evaluate the, the claims that are made out there. So. Right. Um, that that's an introduction about like why this is an important topic. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that kind of in, in the introduction to the article, and then um, and then I kind of go through three big sections about why uh, or how the, uh, if modern information literacy concepts kind of overlap from concepts uh, in the Islamic tradition. Yeah. So, and one of the one of the first uh, concepts that is interesting in information literacy is what they call attitudinal dispositions. So the student, the seeker of information and knowledge. Uh, should have a particular attitude towards how they approach information and learning. And one of those is that, you know, uh, you, you should be curious, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When you're researching a topic, you should be curious about getting all kinds of different viewpoints. And I connected that to the concept of being a lifelong learner in Islam. So I brought some statements from very early scholars about uh, how they would seek knowledge until they died, you know, um, and and that uh, the the scholar is always a student, and once the scholar stops learning, he becomes ignorant, mm -hmm. um, and and that's extremely important now because uh, you know everything is moving so fast, society is moving so fast, the technology is evolving so fast, um, and you know it, it, if you want to participate in this society, you have to keep up with everything that's changing yeah. and happening very true um so there's that lifelong learning component and there's a specific component that is important um for us as muslims is because we need to distinguish between religious knowledge and worldly knowledge hmm. so that distinction was made by um muslim scholars i mentioned the imam shafi i believe i quoted him uh where he makes this distinction so there's knowledge where we get that we get from revelation. This is knowledge that Allah revealed to us because we couldn't access it otherwise. So uh, that's one source of knowledge. And then we have the worldly sources of knowledge. And that's like the scientific method and 
um, you know, logic, rationality and investigation, all of those types of things. And so they're kind of two different sources of knowledge and um, the that are discovering the same reality. So you, we have to synthesize between these two sources of knowledge, right? Because uh, the, the revelation can never purely contradict the what is necessarily known to be true by reason, right? Either the understanding of the revelation is not correct or the logical reasoning behind it is not correct and you have to find the flaw there. But because the truth is one and it is uh, shown to us through these two broad sources, we have to synthesize the knowledge that we learn from Islam, from the Quran and Sunnah and revealed sources and then what we learn by observing nature and science and, and all those other investigative methods. Yeah. So this is this way it's often su is it summarized sometimes as akal and nakal, you know, this, this, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, and, and it's been a, I mean, I've read Ibn Taymir on this is written hugely and, and so have you know, the Asharites and it's a huge subject in Islamic theology and Islamic thought in general, the relationship between, uh, you know, revelation and our minds, the intellect and the world around us, but fascinating subject. Yeah. And, um, that, and I remember, you know, when I converted to Islam, uh, almost 20 years ago, one of the big talking points that was out there is that Islam is an irrational religion and, you know, we, we deny science and all this kind of thing. And then as I learned more about our tradition and, and discovered all of these things like Ibn Taymiyyah, as you said, it was just preposterous that anybody could make that claim. Absolutely. So it, it was a Islamophobic claim or an anti-Islam right. claim people had that was a, a based on whether deliberately or not, they were they were putting out misinformation about Islam. So um, another attitude that we need to have uh, that is mentioned in the information literacy framework, which comes from the American Library Association, by the way, that's what I'm working with. Uh, one of the attitudes that we should have is, uh, they say, is intellectual humility. Right. Uh, right. So we should be curious and we should also be humble, you know, because we there's so much out there that we don't know and that we can't know. Yes. Um, and then you, you won't be able to read up on everything, you know. So there's always going to be things you don't know. There's always going to be somebody who knows something more uh, about a topic than you do. So, there, you know, we, we should be humble like that. I mean, there's, and, there's a great, there's a great, mm -hmm. sorry, there's a great quote by Sir Isaac Newton, the great scientist and discoverer of gravity and so on. He was uh, praised for seeing, you know, a lot further than his predecessors. And he he, he said, uh, this is an example of, of humility, I, I think. You know, if I have seen further than uh, anyone else, it's because I, I have uh, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I stand on the shoulders of giants. So he, he's aware of, of the what has come before him and his own relationship with it. So, I mean, Isaac Newton being humble there uh, as, as a scientist, uh, you know, um, it's a great example of humility. Yeah, that's a great quote. Uh, it's actually, it's at the, I quoted it at the end of the article. And it's uh, and another interesting point that we can derive from that is that uh, scholarship is something that is built up over time. You know, it takes many scholars to contribute to a, uh, knowledge system or a field, as we say. So, um, you know, Newton was just contributing to the field that, you know, building upon what people had done before him, right? Exactly. So um, they call that in uh, information literacy, they call that scholarship as a conversation, mm. right? So I like that expression. Conversation, it is a conversation. Uh, it's uh, uh -huh. academic scholarly work. It's not just an ivory tower guy just doing his thing. It, you're in dialogue and conversation with conversation partners. And those, these partners may have died 2,000 years ago or something, but they're, they're, they are mm -hmm. intellectual conversation partners. And that, that's a very important point, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really important to understand because scholarship is always an ongoing thing. There's nobody who has really the final word on you know, most things, right? Um, the example that I picked from our Islamic tradition is uh, a Shafi'i, Imam Shafi'i, who wrote Ar-Risala, uh, the epistle or the letter, um, yeah. and it was about, uh, it established a framework of usul al-fiqh, which is the, the sources or the principles of Islamic law. So he was one of the first people to write on the topic of usul al-fiqh, and he established these different principles and then everybody after him was responding to him mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. there were uh hanafi more inclined people that disagreed with him and then there were other people who accepted his framework and then 
refined it and everything like that. And then today, um, I don't think I, I've, I've never seen anybody quote uh, a risala, right? Uh, because all of the asul of fiqh literature ha- after him has been refined and everything like that. So it's a really important like historical work, right? Because he, yeah. he got that conversation yeah. started. I'm just going to yeah. turn around for a second. Excuse me. And uh, um, the reason I'm getting this out, this is my uh, copy of uh, the book we're talking about, Shafi's uh, Risala. Um, it's an English uh, translation. It's very, actually very readable. And inshallah, we'll, we'll be doing um, a special uh, program dedicated to uh, this work uh, with, with a, a scholar uh, in uh, within the next three or four weeks, inshallah. So, yeah, this is the book. Inshallah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, there's also another translation, bilingual uh, edition from the uh, Arabic literature series uh, translated by New York University Press. All right. um, and the introduction to that is very good. Right. It contextualizes the, uh, uh, the work very well. Um, so uh, back to humility, um, we have this concept in our tradition that uh, humility is to accept the truth from whoever says it. Yes. Whether the person is old or young or friend or an enemy, you know, uh, righteous or sinner. If it's the truth, it doesn't matter who said it. it we yeah. we are or, loyal. Or Muslim or, Muslim or non-Muslim. I mean, it's an obvious point yep. to make. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Yes. So, um, I mean, even very bad people make good points that are true. Right. Mm. And so, and, and then we also have to accept the truth, like, even if it's not in our favor. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in general, right. Um, <clears throat> you know, warfare is a different thing. If you're going to like mislead, you know, the enemy about your troop movements and things like that, there's that kind of deception that is permissible in Islam because it's based on uh, war uh, you know, you know the, the the reality of war, which is which is consistent with Sun Tzu's uh, art of war, which he he says yeah. in that book something similar that um, yeah. war war is based on deception, something like that. Well, war is uh, deception. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. exactly. So, I mean, that's that's the only you know a few there are a few cases in Islam where it's permissible to lie or be just dece- deceitful, and that's in an all-out like declared war against. Just to uh, just go to a footnote there uh, without going into this rabbit hole, but um, mm-hmm. uh, a prominent Christian thinkers and theologians like St. Augustine, for example, uh, was mm-hmm. famously absolutist when it came to speaking and telling the truth. He said it was not permissible to lie under any circumstances. Um, and this is a very rigid um, uh, code. And uh, I'm not sure it's been taken pragmatically, terribly seriously by the church. But at least they tend to, the church, the Catholic church, at least, tend to have a pretty absolutist view. And so Christians are often horrified by the idea that war is deception. <gasps> How can you say that, Muslims? You know, well, in the real world, of course, they all accept it. You know, they accept that Churchill in the Second World War uh, occasionally deceived the Nazis because he wants to gain the military advantage over them. And that was the nature of warfare. He couldn't just tell them, oh, Mr. Hitler, I'm going to um, invade Normandy next week. You know, I mean, you just can't mm-hmm. do that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Islam, in, in my personal opinion, is much more realistic and pragmatic uh, in that particular area about w- w- what one can do. Uh, otherwise, the world couldn't function normally. There has to be some kind of uh, flexibility, depending on the context, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the the example that I had growing up is people would say, well, you know, if you're hiding Anne Frank in your attic and the Nazis come in and ask where she yeah. is, are you going to tell them the truth in that moment? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it would be morally uh, you would be is obligatory morally for you to lie to the Nazis if you know that they're going to kill somebody unjustly like that. So but that, there but are those that's yeah. moral framework. You couldn't actually. And, and he's probably the yeah. most distinguished thing. And he's not unique in the in the Christian tradition. So there's a great deal of tension there between reality and Christian absolutist principles that, that they have to deal with. Uh, this is not the case in Islam at all, where there's a much more realistic understanding. I think. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And uh, one one caveat I want to mention there is that uh, when, when there's a peace treaty or if there's uh, the war has been, you know, there's a truce or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. there's no um, deception allowed in those moments because part right. of, the, of the truce is that you won't be deceptive towards your enemy. So... Right. Um, you know, that's called betrayal. And uh, the Prophet Sallallahu said on the Day of Judgment, uh, the people who betrayed their oaths and their 
agreements and their peace treaties and everything like that, there's going to be a banner raised over them and say, this is the betrayal of Fulan Ibn Fulan. This is the betrayal of so, the, so and so, the son of so and so. So that wow. uh, is supposed to, uh, if we're God fearing people, then that would make us hesitate to betray yes. anybody. Absolutely. So, uh, so we, we want to accept the truth from whoever uh, says it, right? And it doesn't mean we have to like them or, or agree with everything they say, but if, if what they're saying is true, then we're loyal to the truth, right? We're not just mm. loyal to uh, people. Um, and we need to be a confirmation bias is something that is um, talked about a lot in the library literature. So confirmation bias is that you, uh, we human beings tend to interpret new information um, in ways that confirm our assumptions already. So, you know, we have these narratives of the world. We have a story in our heads about how the world works and everything like that. You know, we have to, that's how we understand. And um, confirmation bias is that we tend to uh, either accept or dismiss new information, whether or not it agrees with what our prior narrative is, right? So, because the uh, the experience of, you know, somebody presenting new information that disrupts your worldview uh, can be unsettling to a lot of people. And so yeah. they, whether they consciously or subconsciously kind of avoid that. So if we are loyal to the truth, uh, we have to watch out for our own confirmation biases. So uh, they, and, that, and that takes moral courage, actually. It's not just a thing you just switch on. Oh, I'm going to, you know, <clears throat> it, it takes a willingness to actually hear, listen to, really listen to, reflect on, engage with consciously um, views which clash with one's paradigm. And and that's not, I, I find that difficult. But when over, over the years, you know, as a Christian, and as a Muslim, to actually actually listen objectively and if necessary to make adjustments to the way I think. And that's, I found that occasionally difficult. Uh, it's, a, it's an ex one has to make the effort to do that, I think. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't mean you have to go out and find every Islamophobic argument so that you can refute <laughs> no. it. Because, uh, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, you don't have to go looking for stuff like that. That's going to necessarily unsettle you. But, you know, when in all things in our life, if we learn new things and we have to go back and reevaluate our Hmm. mental conceptions or mental models of the of the situation so um the next big theme in the article and in information literacy is um the concept of information authority and what this really is about is credibility so what sources are credible what scholars are credible and um uh authority here uh, obviously isn't absolute but um it's important in the evaluation of, source, of sources, nonetheless, because you know a, a very big, well-experienced, accomplished scholar can get it wrong, and some random person on the internet can get it right. That's very rare, you know, yeah. and it's not likely, <laughs> it's but right. it's yeah. possible, right? It's possible. So, so that's information authority, and I connected that to um, what the Allah says in the Quran: "Fasalu ahla dhikri in kuntum la ta'lamun." Ask the people of the scripture if you do not know, right? Mm -hmm. Ask the people of the scripture if you do not know. And this is um, uh, just, uh, it, it was revealed in a specific context, but the scholars, you know, derive this general rule from it that like, well, if you want to learn something, you go ask the scholars about it, go ask the experts about it. So there's this concept of expertise that we have in Islam. You know, a scholar is not the same as, as a, a lay person, right? Um, in terms of who are you going to ask the question. So uh, we, we, we want to find out the scholars and there are all different fields. You know, there's different fields of science. There's all different you know, fields of medicine and uh, history, area studies, uh, humanities, all of these uh, fields, and they all have different um, types of expertise in them, right? And th these are called like knowledge systems, uh, what you call knowledge systems. So, um, you know, bodies of knowledge that are kind of like separate and distinct from other bodies of knowledge. Um, so we want to ask the scholars and we want to go to the experts. And it's important to know that um, expertise doesn't readily transfer. So yes. like th this is a very important point that confuses a lot of people. 
because, you know, oh, this person has a PhD and they're like, you know, they're, they, have a, they have a lot of knowledge. They know a lot of things, you know, and, and, they're, and this person they're talking about is opining upon all kinds of like things that are out, outside of the scope of their actual expertise. Yeah. And then their, their opinions really aren't better than anybody else's when they're talking uh, about those things. I think, I think it's a, a really good point. I won't mention who it is, but uh, I, I know of a, an Islamic scholar, I mean, a real one with a PhD, but also traditional uh, education and learning, very accredited. Uh, who, who made a video um, about the Trinity and the Incarnation uh, to educate people. And um, and it, it contained some very basic mistakes. Uh, I won't go into the details. I mean, seriously, basic mistakes. Mm. No Christian would recognize, educated Christian would recognize what he says as the Christian belief about the Trinity and Incarnation. Mm. And I pointed this out to them, and th they had the good grace to take it down. And the reason I mention this um, it, it is just to illustrate your point, that uh, one area of expertise is not entitle one to say anything about other areas at all it doesn't give you any knowledge or expertise whatsoever in this case uh he, he didn't have that knowledge uh, and uh, he was humble enough to take it down and to learn um some basic concepts in christian theology which he didn't actually have shockingly mm -hmm. and he was teaching others this and i thought oh my goodness me this is not this is not good so you know he he, he did the right thing he showed humility and he is learning uh, the correct concepts. But um, yeah, there wasn't, I don't know why he did that, but there was an assumption perhaps of just transferable authority to other areas which have their own expertise, which he didn't actually possess, bless him. Yeah, I've noticed that too, that there's a lot of Muslims who quote uh, Bible verses and they, they really like misunderstand what the verse is saying or how it's understood. You know, the Christians have their own tafsir of their Bible. Absolutely. Right. So if you really want to know how they understand that verse, go look at what their commentators say, said about that verse. And, and then they're really a lot of Muslims. They're looking at translations and then kind of interpreting the, the plain face value meaning of the words and not actually how that was like historically understood. What does the Greek say? What does the Hebrew say? Yeah. And so on. So, you know, Christian theology is itself uh, its own field. And that's one of the reasons I don't talk about it very much, very much, because I recognize that I don't read Greek, I don't read Latin, I don't read Hebrew. Um, I I could find all that, those things that I want. I focus on other things, but you know, um, you, you really need to. We really do need to be humble in the sense that when we recognize that this is a knowledge system that I don't have access to, and I don't really have the ability to comment on things within it until. I study it, right? So, um, and that, that idea of transferable expertise is um, uh, all over the place, you know, because there's, there's uh, you know, somebody who gets their PhD is like a scholar in this really niche like field usually as compared to the entire academy. Yeah. And, um, and, and just because they have that PhD in that particular thing doesn't mean that they really know anything about it, anyone else, you know. So uh, and, and, and a good example is uh, scientists, physicists, uh, chemists, biologists who comment on theological matters and they just have no they're just totally lost because they just have not studied the field at all. Yeah, I mean, famously, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford <laughs> biologist, um, uh, who is an expert in his field. Uh, I'm not commenting on that, but he, he thinks he's competent to comment on details of Christian theology and biblical interpretation. And is, uh, uh, Christian scholars often complained uh, to his face that you simply don't know what you're talking about. You haven't studied it. You don't have uh, the, the training or the knowledge. And I think for him, though, because uh, many people would say he's quite arrogant, he, he, he has such disdain for theology in general, that he doesn't feel he needs to understand it to be able to critique it. But of course, mm. that's a very hubristic view to take. And if he is going to talk theology, he needs to understand what he's talking about. So he's probably the most egregious example I can think of. Uh, unfortunately, there are many others who do the same. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about Sam Harris. If you have access to like academic databases, I would say go read a few book reviews of, the, of his book in academic literature and it's quite interesting um yeah so so we have this idea of authority like we're looking for credibility uh we use that to evaluate the source i also related that to um the verse in the quran where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that if a fasiq or like a, a wicked person a troublemaker comes to us and uh with some news that we have to 
verify it, right? Or we, yes. we, we have to confirm it. Yes. And the story behind that is there was a man named Walid ibn Uqba, and he was sent by the Prophet وسلم, to uh, a tribe uh, to collect the zakat from them. And uh, for whatever reason, he was scared of them or he thought they were going to harm him. And he came back and uh, he told the Prophet وسلم, that they rejected that and that basically they're going to war with you. Uh, and, you know, the Prophet وسلم, was obviously upset about that. So he sent Khalid ibn al-Walid. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him to investigate and it turns out that that story was not true wow. so the verse came down in response to that so uh, it, it shows us that the credibility of the witness uh, the credibility of the person making the claim is essential to evaluate the source um, and in the Islamic courts this process was called ta'adil right we do that in western courts as well you want to evaluate the credibility of the witness, the credibility of the claim. Yes. Yes. Um, and so we're doing that when we're evaluating websites, when we're evaluating journalism, when we're evaluating science, we're looking at the track record of this particular person or this particular institution. Um, and we use all that to evaluate the source, right? And all of those things, right? It's not just that we, you know, everything the New York Times says is 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 credible. It's not, not necessarily the case. You know, New York Times is more credible than somebody's like random blog, but uh, this goes into another uh, important yeah, the, the, point. The, sorry, just the famous thing, without going into history and politics again, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, we, we were boldly told by virtually all of the Western media, government, security services, that Saddam Hussein was armed to the hilt with weapons of mass destruction. It was an imminent threat to the West. Complete bash, complete fiction. Yep. Um, misinformation at best, disinformation very likely. Um, and, you know, the New York Times, everyone else dutifully reported this as fact. And, you know, and there are many other unfortunate examples of, of serious, um, how should we put it, errors um, in, in the West and everywhere. It's not just the West. It's, I'm not saying Russia gets it right or China is always transparent in its truth-telling um, but yeah. it's just to be fairly universal. Uh, yeah, the weapons of mass destruction claim in Iraq was uh, was disinformation by the government that is fed to the media. So, yes. and then the media reports it, and they'll say anonymous person, high intelligence official said such and such. You know, and you know, are those claims really credible? You know, we don't know. Uh, they use anonymous sources. Is that a legitimate yes. journalism tactic? There's a whole bunch of things there. I don't want to get too much into politics. No, I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting into it. I'm not expecting you to, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm involved just to mention examples just to, just for the record. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got to make it relatable to the things yeah. we see. Um, so the, the next important concept is uh, evaluating the author's perspective and the author's potential bias. And the example that I use for my students when I'm teaching them, undergraduates, um, is uh, the Wall Street Journal versus the New York Times. So those are the big two uh, papers in the US, the two biggest. Um, the Wall Street Journal kind of will give you the right wing view most of the time. And the New York Times will give you the left wing view most of the time. So when you are reading the news from either of those sources, you have to understand that uh, they're coming from a particular perspective. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, or it's false, uh, or it's fake. It just means that you know they have their own narratives and their editorial boards fit their stories in, into into those narratives. Yeah, as I say with the the BBC here, another global uh, broadcaster, um, who who you know the way they reported on the World Cup in Qatar, they refused to broadcast the opening ceremony because uh, they were concerned about LGBT. And the, just the way they highlighted certain liberal causes repeatedly throughout the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the reflection of the news was extraordinary. And clearly they were very, very biased. Um, and, and yet there isn't, the, there isn't this consciousness often that it is. It's always our, it's a national broadcaster that they have balanced, unbiased news. But their selection of topics and the way they promoted certain agendas is clearly very biased uh, and, yeah. and to the detriment of the Muslim world consistently. Um, and that was a particularly um, horrible example, I thought, recently. Uh, right. And there, the, the, the reality is, is that there are no non-biased news sources. Exactly. I mean, every, every news source has its own bias, whether it's right wing, left wing, uh, 
um, uh, you know, different ideologies, independent people, have, you know, grifters, they all have their own uh, agenda, right? So, yeah. you know, you have to take what they say in that context, right? Yeah. And, and th I think the same is true with scientific and medical literature, you know, because science and medicine are funded. Yes. Does that affect the outcome of the science that they're doing? Yes, it does. To what extent? That's debatable. But you have to keep that in mind. You know, if a, if a drug company funds a study, is that the same as a truly independent group that is studying the effects of a drug? Right. So um, there's author perspective and bias, and that goes into the evaluation of information authority, right? So the New York Times has some credibility, but they have a perspective as well. So, you know, keep that in mind. Um, and there are different types of authority, as we said, you know, there's scientific authority, medical authority, and so on, because these are all separate knowledge systems, you know, that have their own rules and terms and everything like that. Um, and then the last point about information authority is that we want to avoid the uh, argument by authority fallacy. So um, if big so-and-so scientist said it's true, it must be true, you know? Um, but Justin, can, can I push back on yeah. that? I, I've read your article and I remember when you said that. And your point is a very, very common. Perhaps everyone agrees with you. I'm not sure I do because... Um, there, there, there are times when we just have to accept authority because it is authority. For example, I, I go to my doctor uh, and he, you know, he diagnoses uh, after careful investigation that I have this illness or this cancer or whatever. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not going to accept what you say because that would be just deferring to you, you as an authority. Of course mm -hmm. I should, because he's an expert and that's mm -hmm. his role is to give expert medical diagnosis. So I'm trusting blindly Mm -hmm. authority because i don't have the expertise so i think mm -hmm. it's not a fallacy uh, to trust authority because it is authority and argue from authority mm -hmm. when we're talking about experts who are recognized authorities in their field and we simply don't have the knowledge but there are mm -hmm. other occasions of course if i was to blindly follow what the bbc said or the u.s government or, or moscow say that would be very mm -hmm. foolish just to blindly accept it because they mm -hmm. are an authority you know they're legitimate authority of you know, in America and Russia and Britain. So I, I think the argument needs to, I, I, of course, you do actually make some more nuance in the article, but I think the common point needs to be nuanced a lot more. There are times when we can trust authority because it is authority and accept their ruling. Mm -hmm. And that's not a fallacy. That's good mm -hmm. sense, I would argue. And, and you make that. I'm, I'm not being, a, I don't want to be unfair mm -hmm. to you. But I, I think the argument as it properly presents itself, I think is itself a fallacy. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, and I appreciate pushback. So don't worry about that. Um, so we we ha I don't think I mentioned this in the article, but we have this concept in Islamic law. It's called taklid. Yeah, where we, did, you, we did mention it in the article. Taklid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, we all have to do that, right? Because we're not all going to be experts on various topics, right? So we have to defer to authority. We have to recognize authority and defer to it when we can't investigate ourselves. Um, the difference is if you go into a field and you're going to become a mujtahid in that field, which is somebody who doesn't uh, yes. follow the follow the authority without investigating the evidence for it, um, then uh, th then you can question authority, right? Yes. But uh, generally, you know, you can trust people with authority who have good track records and everything like that. I'm not saying don't trust your doctor. No, uh, you might, you might need. Guessing you did, but I was just giving a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a raw man argument to push back. That was all. Uh huh. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, okay, so that's authority, and then, um, and then I get into the idea of uh, the roots and the branches. So this is usul and furu. Um, uh, so the usul are the foundational principles of a particular field. And, you know, fiqh has its own usul, uh, deen has its own usul, and um, these are the terms that scholars use. And so we have, um, you know, foundational uh, uh, concepts, first principles, and then everything that comes after that is branching out from that. So yep. this relates to systematic structured learning. So if you are going to become an expert in fiqh, for example, uh, Typically, traditionally, what you would do is you would start with the basic primer in the field, the Shafi'i fiqh, for example. You start with the basic primer, then you would move up to the intermediate works where they talk about intra-school 
disagreements and the reasons for those and the evidences. And then you have these advanced works like uh, uh, Imam Anawi's uh, Mejmu'ah, which has, um, you know, mentions the, the, the rulings of the other schools and their evidences, right? And Ibn Qadamah's, um, the name is Mughni, El Mughni, right? That's the Hanbali one. So he, he mentions opinions from all different schools, their different evidences, and then he gives his own opinion. So you would follow this kind of structured way. And that's what you have to do in order to achieve expertise. And so if you don't want to do taqlid, if you don't want to just blindly follow authority and you actually want to have expertise, then you have to do this structured learning. And we're talking about academic disciplines. I'm not talking about just like uh, uh, news media and stuff, right? But, but scientific disciplines, history, history, things like that. They all have methods, right? They all have foundational principles and then they have uh, the branches that come out from that um, and then um, terminology is also really important so uh, in information literacy the framework or well, they're not in the framework but we're the librarians we talk about controlled vocabulary so what the library of congress does is when they catalog books they bring books in and they have to document all the little pieces of information about the book that's called metadata they, they, they make this record is full of metadata about the book. So data about the book, you know, page numbers and all that kind of stuff, everything you can record about the book. Uh, and then what are the search terms that people should use to find this book? And this is called controlled vocabulary. So they, uh, they set subject terms that are official from the Library of Congress to this book or, or piece of uh, information so that people can find it in the database. And uh, in Islam uh, is similar, I think, is that we have, uh, we have this concept of mustalaha, we have this concept of uh, terminology. So, you know, all the, you know, the four fiqh schools, they all, sometimes they, they use the words the same, sometimes they don't, right? So mm -hmm. if you are uh, an expert in Shafi'i fiqh and you know nothing about Hanafi fiqh, you might be confused when they're talking about fard and wajib because they both mean obligatory to the other schools. They're synonyms, yeah. but for the Hanafis, they have a specific difference, right? And a lot of scholars they will talk about like our sheikh said this, the two imams said this, and they're you know they're referring to a specific person that you would just have to know who they're talking about. So um, all knowledge systems have controlled vocabulary. Like these are the terms that they're they've uh, agreed upon to describe the phenomenon in their field. Um, and, you know, it's related to terminology. What terms are you using? What what uh, search terms do you use, right? Um, when you're searching in EBSCO or ProQuest, for example, you need to know the words that scholars are using to describe the thing you're looking for, right? Um, and we have these official keywords that come from the Library of Congress and that are in Part of the library databases that's how you can find a book in the catalog um, and then you have author supplied keywords as well so they're words that are not officially <clears throat> part of the uh, library of congress vocabulary but the author has supplied the keyword because they think this will help you find it yeah uh, just to say yeah. on, a, on a slightly different point you're talking about you know mm -hmm. using key terms to access uh you know literature and so on and that, that's very helpful but on, on a kind of related term I, i'm i'm reminded in the kind of comparative religion uh field how words the same word can have quite different meanings uh, semantic fields uh, as well depending on the religion so what mm -hmm. a christian might mean uh by god or by salvation uh for example is actually quite different from potentially from what a muslim may may mean and and this kind of easygoing use of language can misinform so you know a muslim wants to know what you know a, a christian thinks about uh a prophet what, what are the prophets he, he he or she will come up with maybe a different definition than uh than the christian would so uh, the point there is that language can be a false friend we say that in you know when i'm speaking or learning french for example there are certain terms that sound really oh i know what that word means but actually it means something completely different in french even though the words the same and the same and same in, in conversations we can misunderstand each other if we don't ask well what do you mean by when you say god what's your concept mr christian when you say that or mr muslim what do you mean by god you know tawhid obviously we can't just assume there's an, an equivocal uh meaning because the word is the same and, and that's often 
trip people up in my experience we've got to dig a bit deeper to you know the details otherwise we're going to misunderstand each other i think yeah that's absolutely right and uh, that's why terminology and definitions are so important so yeah. any scientific field any um medical field you know they all have these terms that they use right so if you want to know what they're talking about, you have to go look up those terms, right? Yeah. You can't just assume on face value of the word okay. uh, that you know what they're talking about. I'll give you a good example that I was uh, that I found um, the other day. Uh, I I heard that um, in 2022 there was a Nobel uh, Prize awarded to a group of physics a physicists who conducted an experiment that was related to quantum entanglement. Oh, yes. A fantastic. That, that, by the way, folks, if you don't know what quantum entanglement is, do Google it. Uh, it's the most extraordinary phenomenon in the universe, I think. But anyway, it's not boring. <laughs> yeah. No, I think so. Well, I it lost is. my train of thought. Why was I bringing oh, that up? I interrupted you. You talk about quantum entanglement. And I was just saying if people didn't know what this actually refers to. It's, it's oh, how, oh, right. We're talking about terminology. Action. Okay. Yeah, action, because... at, action at a distance where two things can still relate at a it could be light years apart and they still interact at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. What was really interesting about that, because there were a lot of videos on YouTube about how mm -hmm. saying how these scientists prove that the universe is not real. And it's like, <laughs> what, Amazing. what do you mean by that? And um, the, the two opposing views in science, as I understand them, is that realism is that, you know, a particle has a specific property that is, is true wherever it wherever it is whether you're looking at it or not and if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it it still definitely fell that's realism yeah and then anti-realism is that if the tree falls in the forest and nobody heard it then it wasn't there at all so that you know those, those are the competing uh, uh theories and these headlines that people were putting out there these that these physicists proved the universe isn't real is just like really confusing until you understand they're talking about these really specific like yeah uh theories in physics right quantum events rather than tr trees in woods it was a very yeah specific, yeah mm -hmm. i i do have a bachelor's degree in physics so it's of kind course. of my like uh yeah. hobby i decided not to go to go all the way in physics but it it wow. really uh uh it makes you i think it makes you appreciate the mystery of the universe right so have, yeah have, uh, absolutely you know so i that's why it always fascinated me uh and and sir isaac newton i was always a fan because his physics were actually very really easy to do uh even einstein i thought was easy to do it's uh niels bohr and uh the quantum mechanics people and the electromagnetism people that's when it gets crazy yeah, really really uh, very crazy. Extremely difficult, though. But yeah. I appreciated Einstein for how uh, beautifully elegant and easy his theorem was to understand. Yes. Um, so, you know, we talked about scholarship as conversation. And then the sort of the last point I have is that um, when we really want to understand a topic that we actually need to seek out opposition information. So and I'm not saying go out and find everything that, that Islamophobes talk about so you can, you know, argue with them. You know, not everybody has to do that. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, in the news, for example, you know, the, the story will come out. It's framed a particular way. You know, this is the perspective that they're putting on it. What's the counter perspective? Right. What's the what's the disagreement with that? What's the other evidence for that? And that interaction between the claim and the opposition back and forth, back and forth. That's what creates knowledge, right? Because somebody makes a claim and then somebody opposes the claim and presents new evidence. And then somebody then opposes that claim and presents new evidence and theories get built up that way in this conversation between, you know, ideally between scholars, right? So um, that's why I think opposing information, uh, uh, at least being able to access opposing information is really important. And even in the Quran, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he repeats many of the arguments of the idolaters. He, he says, وَقَالُوا And they said this, وَقُلْ And قُلْ saying to the Prophet sallallahu You say this, right? This is their claim. This is the, this is the counter argument, right? Yeah. And, and there are many examples of that, right? 
I think just on one example, I was going to mention uh, how important it is you know, if we want to avoid misinformation, disinformation in the news, in the news about the world, is to read multiple sources. So uh, not just rely on one news news source, but read a diversity of viewpoints as well. So not just the Washington, uh, uh, what do you got the Wall Street Journal? That's it. But Al Jazeera as well, or, or whatever, just to get. But uh, on, on your specific point about quoting people accurately, one of the um, impressive things I discovered about Ibn Taymiyyah was when he was uh, interacting with uh, his opponents, whoever they were, um, uh, he, he would he would quote them, uh, obviously, that they're allegedly what they said in writing. And Professor Al-Tubki, uh, actually, in, uh, who um, come on blogging theology, uh, looked in there. And in fact, he checked or every time we could check that he had quoted someone else. Ibn Taymiyyah was meticulously careful to quote them accurately and fairly. So in other words, he, he didn't distort or lie or leave out crucial bits to, to straw man the opponent. He was meticulously careful to be fair to them, even though he completely disagreed with them. And I thought, wow, what, what, what an honorable moral thing to do. Um, uh, and it shows that a man has integrity when he can cite his enemies accurately. It's very tempting to distort them and mock them or subtly uh, distort what they say to, to make them look silly. But Ibn Tamir didn't do that. And he's been checked uh, every, when, when he can be checked. And he's always been found to be accurate and fair in his reportage. So I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah, it's uh, one of many reasons why I really like uh, uh, Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah. He's one of the scholars that I have studied. I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on him, but I, I do have read quite a bit. Um, so having this opposition information is important, or at least being able to access it. And, and, and I, you know, for me, just personally, like, I, uh, I, I want to know, like, why do the flat earth people think the way they do? Yes. <laughs> and yes. you can find out that their theory is, like, kind of absurd for many reasons, but, like, why do they think that, right? So, um, uh, you know, in general, like, suppressing information is not, not a good idea, right? Even if it's bad information, like we just like we have to counter it with the truth, right? Um, in many reasons, why suppressing information it can be very, very problematic. Um, and, and then one more point that we skipped up here is that um, the uh, the Prophet wasallam said, "It is enough sin to repeat whatever is heard. It is enough sin or enough falsehood to repeat whatever is heard." Right. Yeah. And, and this is gossip, right? Oh, I heard this. And did you know that? It's like gossiping and rumoring and things like that. And we really need to be careful with uh, social media because, especially if you're taking your, your news from social media, is that in, in any given day, you will find, you know, 30 stories that are, are there, you know, or maybe not that much, but, you know, 10 stories, right? And, you know, unless you're, it's your job to analyze all these things, you know, you, you probably have a job doing something else, that the effort that it goes to verify everything in that story can be, you know, to, is without the, the scope of, of what we can do, right? Yep. And at some point, I realized mm. that, you know, I'm on Twitter, right? And I'm getting all these news articles and uh, from different perspectives. And then I realized that, you know, well, a lot of this stuff, I don't have the time to verify any of it, you know, what these people are saying on Twitter and social media. So um, you don't want to repeat something, I think. Right. You don't want to share something uh, that you can't verify. Right. Um, you, you know, because, you, you know, you really you could be passing off a lie or a falsehood and, you know, because you didn't verify it. So. I would just put that warning out there and really be really careful about the things that you share, right? Um, because it can be misleading. So. Yeah, and it's sin. It's a sin as well. It, it, it's yeah. Yep. It's it's kind of like uh, being an accessory to lying, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and even if it's true, like even if it could be true, like you're you're sharing like celebrity gossip. Like what's that? Like, <laughs> you know, we we shouldn't even we shouldn't be gossiping, right? A lot of the news is gossip. You know, yeah. it's just there's no benefit in it. It's just like for entertainment, you know, and, and the infotainment issue also has, uh, I think, corrupted um, a, a lot of the information or a lot of the perspectives that people have is because, you know, 
and this goes back to Pulitzer. So I didn't cite this article in, I, I didn't cite this Harvard article in the article that we're talking about, but there is an article in the Harvard Business Review. I don't know if I mentioned it to you or somebody else, but it's uh, the title of it is why the news is not true or why the news is not the truth or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this uh, author wrote back in the 90s and he was explaining how in the time of Pulitzer, Pulitzer, right? Everybody's heard that name, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he transformed journalism into like a, 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 a with narratives and characters, and you're telling a story and everything like that. Um, and then this author at Harvard was kind of showing how you know, all their debates were distorted because of this sensationalism that the, the journalists uh, came up. At the time, they called it yellow journalism which was based off of the Yellow Kid comic strip. So they were kind of like, you know, these newspapers are just comic strips or just, you know, they're shoddy, sensationalist, everything like that. Uh, but a lot of the news is, uh, at least in America, it, it follows that format. You know, it, yeah. it, it's, it's telling you a story. It's bolstering its particular narrative. I mean, real news is boring, right? Real news is like a bulletin board. These things happened. I mean, it's just boring, you know, but it's turned into this huge business of infotainment and then it's not actually informing you, you know, it's, it's, they're trying to condition you to accept their perspective, which could be warped. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's again, one of the reasons why you need to uh, at least be curious of what the opposition is saying and, um, you know, seeking out different sources, diversifying your news sources. And yes. also, I would say you make sure that your uh, news sources, when you're diversifying them and you're not, you know, picking a whole bunch of left wing or a whole bunch of right wing sources, like pick ones that are from the left and some from the right. There are these uh, apps now. I, I saw one I forgot off the top of my head. Uh, you know, if somebody's really going to go in deep into this news media world, they have these apps that actually aggregate the news. And, um, you know, and so you'll find a story and it appears in a hundred newspapers. And when you click on that newspaper, you know, you can see how the headlines are all framed in different ways. So there's some are framing it in a left wing way. Some are framing it in a right wing way. Some are more neutral. And then if you click on that article and it would tell you, uh, give you some stats about that particular news outlet, uh, where their funding came from and what their political bias is and, and what their, you know, their news guard rating is and everything like that. Um, so it, there's so much out there that like you re- if you really want to get into all of it, you need to be using apps like that um, because, you know, it's just so complicated. Right. And, and, and the funding, you know, I mean, if you're if you're getting your news sources and they're all being funded by the same uh, the same organization or the same person or, you know, that could be that could be problematic. So that's that's not a different perspective. It's just a different outlet for the same perspective. Yeah. So you want to, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, you quote uh, uh, someone called Amber Benham, uh, very helpful, uh, who who provides us with uh, some guidelines for evaluating websites. And they say, ask yourself, who wrote this article? Who sponsors the site? Is there an agenda to the content? Is it complete, accurate and current? What kind of page is it? Is the URL appropriate for the kind of content on the site? And they go on, the internet is a powerful tool with a tremendous amount of information to offer, but verify, verify, verify is still the name of the game. When you take all that you've investigated into consideration, count on your instincts to tell you whether you can trust the information you've found. Don't take shortcuts. And remember, buyer beware, even if it isn't money that's changing hands. And I thought that was some great advice for evaluating websites. Yeah, that's a that's a great quote. I got this. She, I think the author uh, he or she wrote that in 2012, uh, so oh, 10 years wow. ago or yeah. a while ago. You know, so it's probably even more of a problem now. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't work out so, from Amber Benham if this was a man or a woman, but of course, maybe we shouldn't ask that question today. But um, but anyway, yeah. statistically, it was probably a woman if, if she's a li- if it was a librarian. So, but that that's just statistically. True. So, okay. um, but it doesn't matter because man or woman, it, what what was written is true, and I I accept oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah. So that that really basically goes over everything, and I just want to reiterate that this is this is extremely important. You know, if you're not literate in these school in these skills, or at least have some of these skills, and you have a healthy dose of skepticism about things that are claimed out there, you know, it's really easy to be misled. 
in a number of ways, whether somebody's selling you a fake product or making you a fake politi misleading political claim or any kind of those things. And so, um, and, and this skill, these skills are going to become as important as reading has become in mm. society because um, people who, uh, you, know, you know, and we live in democracies, right? They have to vote. And uh, how are you going to evaluate candidates if you have no idea to to get information about, you know, uh, to, to, to get varying perspectives on the candidate that you're supposed to be voting for, right? If you don't even know how to do that, then how can you make an informed vote, right? So um, in that in that regard, you know, citizens are going to have to do that to protect yourself from scammers, to be able to participate in society. And then these information systems, they're just going to become more complex. They're going to become the artificial intelligence is going to be uh, introduced into them. It already has, but it's going to be that's going to take off. And, uh, you know, in keeping up with all of that, you know, um, is going to be a challenge for a lot of people. So so that was the reason I wrote the article, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the original um, concern was about fake news because that was on the rise yep. at the time, but it's it turned out to be something really uh, wider than that and, and and more more important than just identifying fake news uh, mm -hmm. um, can be applied to many other situations. So great. Well, thank you very yeah. much. Justin. Just to remind us uh, that you are the author of Finding Truth in the Age of Fake News: in Information Literacy in Islam. And as I say, I it's linked in the description below. Do do read it. There's lots of juicy bits. Uh, there to help us really wise up about how we need to uh, assess and assimilate and understand uh, you know news and so on so uh, Justin thank you very much for your time your expertise has been most interesting and instructive thank you it was my pleasure as always until next time take care salam until next time welcome salam at Parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.